open your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 14, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 15. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man carrying his armor, Come, let us go across the garrison of the Philistines on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was waiting at the far edge of Gabah, under the pomegranate tree in Magan. The force was with him, numbered about 600 men. Akya, the son of Atuv, Akavod's brother, the son of Pinhas, the son of Eli, the Kohen of Adonai and Shiloh, was carrying a ritual vest. No one knew that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan was trying to cross to the garrison of the Philistines, there was a rocky spur on one side and another rocky spur on the other. The name of one was Bozes, the other was Sheneh. One spur rose up on the north in front of Mishah, on the other the south in front of Geveh. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on. Let us go across to the garrison of these uncircumcised people. Mimi, Adonai will do something for us, since Adonai can rescue a few people as easily as many. His armor bearer replied, Do everything you think you should. I am with you. Whatever you decide. Jonathan said, Here, we'll cross over to those men and let them know that we're there. If they say... Wait till we come to you, we'll stand still where we are, and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will go up, and that will be the sign that Adonai has given us victory over them. So both of them let their presence be known to the garrison of the Philistine. And the Philistine says, look, here are some Hebrews coming out of the holes they've been hiding in. Then the men of the garrison said to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us. We want to show you something. Jonathan told his armor bearer, Come on up after me, for Adonai has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up, using his hands as well as his feet, with his armor bearer behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer following finished them off. That first slaughter of about 20 men was accomplished by Jonathan and his armor bearer in a space only half as long as one side of an area a pair of oxen could plow in a day, about 200 yards. There was a panic in the field camp among all the Philistines. Likewise, the garrison and the raiding party panicked. Besides all of this, there was an earthquake. Thus, it grew into a panic caused by God. Thank you, Paula. You did well with all the Hebrew names. Last Shabbat, I finished with this very profound verse from Micah. The one who breaks open the way will go before them. Obviously referring to the Lord himself. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them. The Lord is at their head. 
you notice the order of how things happen. God is the one who has to break out, and then we who are his follow right behind him, hopefully right behind him. You know, we tend to sometimes lag behind, sometimes try to run ahead of him. But in any event, um, and you remember that the picture here is that of sheep who are in a sheep pen, um, a temporary enclosure with a temporary uh, gate built up by the shepherd and how that the first thing that he does in the morning is break that enclosure so that the sheep can follow right behind him and get out into the pasture. Very strong metaphor for us because, you know, there are times when you realize that there are walls in front of you. You ever get that feeling? Walls before you and everything you try to do, you know, you use the biggest um, catapults, the biggest battering rams you can and still those walls stand and there is no apparent breakthrough. And at some point, you wake up to the fact that God is bigger than those walls. There's a singer who made a very profound statement. He said, have you seen what God has been doing to walls lately? And the picture that Paula was reading to us, you're talking about massive walls on one hand. On the other hand, you're seeing God's massive power that, is, that, shows, that proved itself to be infinitely greater than these walls. Now, just to give you a bit of background so that you get the picture, we'll need to lay out a bunch of information historically and geographically. We ha- we're going to show you a map uh, in just a bit here so that you see the picture and then we'll dive in and see what's actually happening on the ground. The Philistines came from somewhere in the Aegean Sea, somewhere around Greece, and they settled in what we now call the Gaza Strip. And that's where, by the way, where the term uh, Palestinian comes from. It's a Roman perversion of, of the word Philistine. And the Philistines had a chokehold on the people of Israel for over 200 years. That's a long time. It wasn't continuous, but from time to time they came, they massed, they grabbed them, they squeezed the life out of the people of Israel. And, and we have that all the way b- going back to Samson's time and earlier. And this was finally um, put to rest by, by King David. So what happened was the Philistines set out from their base in Gaza and they set outposts inside Israel. And um, they had a very strong military, superior weaponry. Uh, They had iron weapons, whereas Israel had wooden and bronze. And uh, they had a large core of, uh, of tanks, not quite. Uh, chariots, which were the tanks of their day. And uh, the people of Israel were under their thumb in 
lots of ways militarily and economically. Uh, earlier in chapter 13, we see that if you were a farmer and if you, if you had farming tools that needed sharpening, you had to go, you had to make a trek from where you were in the Judean hills, and we'll see a map in a moment, from the Judean hills down into the coastal area where, where Gaza, where the Philistines were. And you can imagine that these guys had quite a monopoly. And they charged them through the nose and ear and throat and so on. During the scene that we're going to see here, none of the soldiers had any swords. Can you imagine that? Fighting an army of superior people, superior weaponry, not having any swords. They had spears, they had slingshots, javelins, but no swords, nothing of iron. And, of course, the people of Israel paid a pretty significant tribute to them, pretty significant tax. And they were, the people of Israel were demoralized. In fact, we're told in chapter 13, verse 7, that the troops, the military of Israel, were quaking with fear. They're freaking out. And by the way, this is a fulfillment of what the Torah predicted. Think about that. God promised Israel, if you were not to follow me, I will see to it that when you go to face your enemies, they will and you'll run away. They'll just blow and, and chase you just by their breath. On the other hand, the Lord also states, this is in Leviticus 26, the Lord, the opposite was also true when the people of Israel were faithful to the Lord. The Lord said, you will pursue your enemies. They will fall by the sword before you. Five of them will chase a hundred. And a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Here you have the people of Israel being chased. And without even being chased, just being totally demoralized and paralyzed by fear. Now at this point I want to stop for a minute and just take you to the map of Israel, uh, ancient Israel, just highlight a few things and then come back to scripture. So um, let's pause for a minute and uh, I'll do the, can you all see that? Can you stand and, s can you see me now? Okay. Um, you see all the way down at the left, by, uh, by the way, the um, blank space there is the Mediterranean, and at the very bottom left is uh, a little section called Philistia, which is what is now known as the Gaza Strip. Uh, you see Jerusalem highlighted, and... Um, Right around Jerusalem is where you have all the action taking place. And what happened, the Philistines came, let's see if I can point out here. The Philistines came with their army up to above Jerusalem and they set up an outpost, basically a garrison. And we're told in chapter 13 
that Saul gathered the people of Israel together in a place that was right around here in the Jordan Valley, a place called Gilgal. You've seen that if you read your Bible in the book of Joshua. And what had happened was Jonathan attacked the Philistines with a group of 1,000 people, totally destroyed the garrison. The Philistines were outraged. It was something that they couldn't permit. And so they brought a whole mass uh, of army uh, to this area right above Jerusalem. And Saul and his people retreated from this place right behind them to a place called Gibeah. Uh, Again, a few miles, five miles above Jerusalem. And what you have is the series of movements back and forth. The Philistines are right here. Uh, Saul is directly below them. And the Philistines sent a raiding party up here, uh, a raiding party down here, a raiding party here, and a raiding party there. The purpose for those raiding parties was to isolate Saul and to establish their own place so that they would be able to be in a better position And the people of Israel, again, are right here in a place called Geba. And the Philistines are in a place here called Michmash. I won't ask you to pronounce it. Can you say Michmash? So this is kind of the scenario. uh, The beginning of this chapter, chapter 14, we find that that, uh, Jonathan is here. And he looks out and sees the Philistine... Uh, outpost, the new one, outpost uh, here, and and that's where the story begins. Okay, let's turn off the light. Now, I don't know how it struck you. But Jonathan's words to his armor bearer sound like a young man who was bored and had nothing to do. Hey, what's up? Let's go get some action. Let's cross over. Here we are in, uh, in this side of the cliff, and the Philistines are over there. Um, and by the way, these are steep cliffs. It's sort of like when you go to the, to the mountains uh, of Colorado, and... Uh, you see the very steep cliffs, and these cliffs are named. Each one of the cliffs has a name. It's sort of like devil's thumb, devil's head, etc., etc., where people uh, consider the outcropping to be very special, very, um, very unique, so they named them. Jonathan says, let's go over to the, garrison, the, the Philistine garrison. Now, on one level, you want to say to him, Jonathan, what's the matter you? Here you have a hugely superior garrison. They're, the odds are 20 to 2. Just the two of you versus 20 of them. To make any kind of contact, you have to descend down the cliff And if there's going to be a battle, you might have to go up a cliff and fight these guys. 
Now notice that what's Papa doing here? Saul is staying in this place called Gibeah, which I pointed out to you. And he is sitting under a pomegranate tree. Now, just to clue you in, this is not like sitting under a, um, a tree and, and sipping mint juleps here. What was part of reality for them <clears throat> is that when you didn't have um, a city that was properly set up, you would hold court outside. And that's apparently what, what Saul is doing. He's holding court under this very well-known tree, pomegranate tree. And the high priest is there and, and the, um, the soldiers are there. And he's secure. He's secure. He's holding court while the Philistines are doing what they're doing, sending out raiding teams. And by the way, the word, Hebrew word for raiding it's not just to go out and, and have a little expedition. The Hebrew word for raiding is destroyers. Those who are hamashchit, those who are coming to destroy. Saul is clueless. In this, in this chapter, in this scenario, he doesn't come out looking very good. Well, for that matter, he doesn't come out looking very good. In lots of scenarios... But the facts are grim. Again, folks, get your arms around the fact that from an Israelite perspective, things could not be any worse. They were facing an enemy that was vastly superior in numbers, vastly superior in weaponry, better trained, and one that has come over and was sitting smack dab in the middle of their territory. And not only that, everybody is demoralized and paralyzed by fear. You know what fear does to you? It kind of binds you up and makes you not think straight and in, incapable of taking steps, the correct steps of action. But the bottom line here in all of this is we see throughout all, the, all of these stories throughout Scripture is that you have the human drama and then behind the human drama you have the divine drama. You have God at work. The fact is that God is very much engaged in here, in this situation. And this is a lesson that we need to extract and embrace because so much of the time we deal with our own drama or melodrama. You know, life is busy, life is intense, life is stressful, too much work, not enough work, not, not healthy, etc., etc. Human drama, relationships, you can go on and on and on. And we sometimes get so overwhelmed by the human drama, we forget the basic fact that God is alive and well and active in our drama in our story and that he has a plan to kind of fast forward here what we will see is that through Jonathan's courageous action God engaged and broke through verse 23 of this chapter the Lord rescued Israel on that day that's the end of the story 
Now, Jonathan is not foolish. He is courageous. He's gutsy. And we saw that he attacked in chapter 13, verse 2. We saw that he attacked. And here, he is going despite the overwhelming odds that are facing him. Why? Because he saw the situation to be unacceptable. Kind of reminded me of a story from World War II, and I'm a history buff. The United States um, battalion was surrounded in, in a Belgian city called Bastogne. This was during the Battle of the Bulge towards the end of World War II. And um, it was cloudy. The Air, uh, American uh, Allied Air Force could not fly over. And... Um, the defenders were running low on food and ammunition. The Germans came and, and uh, sent them, them a message, delivered a message saying, surrender. If you surrender, things will go well. And um, the American command wrestled with it and then finally decided to send one word response to the German offer, nuts. In other words, we have absolutely no desire to give ourselves over to you despite the odds. And you have a situation here that from one perspective is nutty. Who would go to face 20 to 2 kinds of odds? And not only that, Jonathan makes things even more difficult. Read with me, if you would, um, the few verses, verse 6, 7, and 8. Jonathan said to the young man, come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And by the way, this is not an ethnic slur. He is basically saying it's unacceptable that these guys who are pagan and who hate our God would be would have us by the throat that's not God's best for us and I refuse to accept that that's where Jonathan is coming from armor bearer says I'm with you verse 8 we're going to cross over and we'll reveal ourselves to them and here is the on one hand on the other hand Two types of scenarios, door A and door B. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. Now, that is nutty. It, he, Jonathan is saying, if the Philistines come down from the cliff and say, we're going to fight you down here at the bottom, any sane person would say, yeah, sure, we'll do that because these guys are going to be tired from coming down. But if they say to us, door, uh, door B, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. This will be a sign to us. What is he doing here? He is making things more difficult for himself. He has to cross down the cliff. 
then climb up the cliff, as we will see on hands, hands and feet. And then when he gets up there, he and his armor bearer are going to fight 20 guys. And you say, he is really certifiably Meshuggi. <laughs> Why is he doing that? It's not bravado. He is basically saying, it has to be God. God has to demonstrate that he is the one who is moving things here or else I want no part of it. Amen. You talk about radical faith. It has to be all about God. God, you're going to have to show me whether this is from you. And if it is from you, I know I have no doubt that we're going to overcome and we're going to get the victory. He's depending on the Lord to show him and to empower him to do what needed to be done. Radical faith. And then verse 6 is sort of the crowning statement that he makes here. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Amen. Notice, folks, he's not saying, we'll give it our best shot. Eh, you know, we don't have anything better to do. We'll go down, we'll see what's happening. We'll do what we can. And in process, we might get killed, but that's okay. He's saying, God will show us. And if God shows us, he has already given them into our hands. Look at the language, folks. Verse 12. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan, his armor bearer, come up and we'll teach you a lesson. In other words, uh, we will teach you who are the real soldiers here. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. This is already a done deal. God has already delivered them into our hands. God has already gone before. He is leading us and he has already prepared the way and it's already a done deal. And yes, we have to fight. Yes, human initiative and intense work takes place here. Obviously, folks, if, you, if it's been a while since you've climbed a cliff on hands and feet, let me tell you, it's exhausting. Earlier this summer, we went to visit one of our ladies uh, in Castle Rock, and uh, my grandson saw the, the rock formation, and of course, being the all-boy type that he is, said... Uh, Grandpa, we have to go there. <laughs> Which we did, and he wasn't content just by taking the, the uh, gentle path that leads you almost all the way there. He wanted to go all the way up to the top. And so that's what we did. Hands and feet, we climbed up all the way to the top of Castle Rock. Exhausting. Think of what it would be like to do, have to do that and then fight 20 guys who are better, who are fresher, better equipped. Yes, it required a great deal of energy. Later on, we see that as God broke through, 
the people still had to engage and they were exhausted. So somehow there is this relationship between God's work and human initiative and human effort. You know, sometimes we, we go to one ditch or the other ditch. Sometimes we say, God, this is what I'm thinking. It's a great idea. And would you please put some pixie dust on it to bless it so, so that everything will go well. That's one ditch. The other ditch is we sit and say, Lord, uh, would you show me what to do and tell me exactly what to do and when to lift my leg, this leg, and when to lift that leg. You know, it's easy to be in both ditches. And the Lord says, no, there's a middle there. Somehow, the Spirit of God stirs within us, gives us the initiative, the desire to do things. As it did, clearly did with Jonathan, Samson did with all kinds of folks. And yes, we are stirred and moved to do things. However, the bottom line, the foundation, must be a deep rock, a, a deep bedrock conviction that what really makes the difference is not our power, but the power of God. That the power of God is able to work despite all kinds of odds, despite all kinds of walls. Amen. In fact, folks, overwhelming odds provide a platform for God to demonstrate what He can really do. Amen. The Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect or is completed in weakness. So it requires the willingness to listen. And as James point, pointed out earlier today, that means wait. And all of us hate the word wait. Listening to the voice of God as He leads us and continue to listen to the voice of God rather than take the ball and run with it and say, God, it's been real, which we tend to do sometimes. We sense direction from God, grab the ball, run with it, and Lord, it's so long. As we do that, as we listen, as we discern the voice of God, as we take the steps the Lord shows us, somehow the mix, and it's a mystery, folks, it's a mystery. Somehow God works in and through us. And that's what we see with Jonathan. Jonathan is an agent that God uses to bring about redemption and restoration for his people. Again, remember, the people are quaking in their boots. They're scared, witless. They're, they're, they're freaking out. They're demoralized. They're, they're um, paralyzed with fear. And here you had this one guy who has the chutzpah, the courage to press on, to listen to God, to trust God and do what God wants to get done. And God does it. Remember, God has already been involved in this. Jonathan's saying, because the Lord has already given them into our hands. You know, we, we forget. We forget, folks, that God is at work. 
And that somehow our human drama fits into his drama and his plans. And his plans go way back. The Lord states through Isaiah, Remember this, fix it in mind. I make known the end from the beginning. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Somehow our circumstances, our life circumstances, fit in God's larger previous plan. And yeah, we don't have a clue sometimes. You know, we don't have a clue. We wish that God would uh, press a uh, trap door and that down would come a complete set of blueprints that tell us you go from here to here, from here to here, from here to here. Guess what? It doesn't happen. We know God's general plan of what He wants us to do in a general sense, and we trust that God will show us in the specifics. Jonathan does that, and verse 15, look at verse 15, folks, carefully. The panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. All that Jonathan did is, well, not all. He demolished that little outpost. And then God releases his power and just gets to work big time. Not just with the little group, but with the entire Philistine army. And they're freaking out and they're running away. And all of that begins with the courage of one individual who says, God can save. There's nothing that can hinder God from saving, whether by few or by many. Part of our unbelief, our lack of trust in God, is we assume, Lord, we have to have an overwhelming army before we move. And God says, no. We're going to shrink you down to the right size and I'm going to use the few of you to do the big work. And it's hard to get our arms around it because all we can see sometimes, folks, are the walls. You know, the walls before us. We have obstacles and hindrances and this isn't working right and that isn't working right. We all go through that. We feel hemmed in. And at some point, we wake up to the fact that God is bigger than the walls. Please say with me, God is bigger than the walls. And yes, we have to deal with reality on the ground, just like Jonathan and the armor bearer had to climb on their hands and feet. But who's the one who did all the big work here? It was God. It was God. The Lord was already at work. The Lord had already a plan. He was already engaged. And somehow, Jonathan's actions fit into God's larger plans to bring about salvation to Israel. Somehow, there was a clear relationship between Jonathan's initiative and God's work. And we at Yeshua Tzion are convinced 
that despite wrong kinds of odds or poor odds or limited odds, that those odds provide a platform for God to demonstrate who He is. God has brought us here to Greenwood Village. We're surrounded by folks who are extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, many of whom are also extremely spiritually hungry. Rich, materially poor, spiritually. And we don't know all the particulars, how God wants to work, how God wants to use us. But our conviction as a congregation and I trust as individuals is simply to say nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or by few. We want to learn this in this coming year, 4772, how to trust God. That His plan and His purposes will come about. And that God will break through and will do His stuff. And then as it happens, folks, we have to step back and say, Yea, God. To give God the credit. Isaiah states, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I want to finish with Psalm 115, which is our, our heart's desire, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Would you please stand? Let's just be quiet for a moment. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge, Lord God, that in you we live and move and have our being. We acknowledge, Lord God, that without you being engaged in our lives, Lord God, our lives really don't amount to much, Lord. Lord God, we thank and praise you for your presence with us. We thank you, Lord God, for your power at work with us. We pray, Lord God, for each of us that where we are facing walls, Lord God, that we would see you and depend on you, Lord God, and trust you that you are infinitely greater than those walls. We pray, Lord God, for discernment and wisdom to be stirred up by your ruach, Lord God, how to take initiative, how to be courageous, always depending upon the leading and instruction from you, Lord. And Lord God, we pray that you would break forth and that you would receive all the honor and the glory. In Yeshua's name.